And so we'll read this morning for a sermon text, Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38. Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38. And before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we now come to study your holy scriptures, we pray, Father, that you would bless the scriptures to us, that we would be given hearts that are made willing and humble and ready to receive your word for that which it truly is, the very word of God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 19, starting at verse 30. Remembering now, Lot has been sent up out of Sodom by the angels of God. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him so that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. And so once again, I just set a few more things before us to have in our mind as we study the text. Second Peter chapter 2 tells us something about Lot that we might find surprising. Second Peter chapter 2, reading from verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul, over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Righteous Lot. Righteous Lot, counted righteous by faith. But in his Christian life or in his life as a believer, we can only call him an ineffective failure. There's nothing else that we can call him. We can't speak of righteous Lot, the preacher of righteousness that turned people to the Lord God. He didn't turn his wife to the Lord. He didn't turn his daughters to the Lord. He didn't turn his betrothed son-in-laws to the Lord. Righteous Lot, counted righteous by God, we have it before us in the scriptures, was fruitless. Fruitless in terms of the things of eternity. Righteous Lot, a failure in so many different ways. And I wonder if you're at all considering the state of the Christian church today in our society around about us. How successful are we? And and I just mean we as the whole. I'm not necessarily meaning just we in this room, but we as the whole, the Christian church of Australia. How successful are we as the whole, the Christian church in Australia, 
at raising children who walk with the Lord? How many are we losing? How many are going on from strength to strength? How many are bringing pleasure to their parents? You know, the wise son that makes his father glad. How many are we retaining? Now, depending where you get the numbers from, but there are all sorts of surveys going around and you can find a lot of information on the internet, but it's appearing that the church in societies like ours is managing to retain in a faithful and obedient walk with God something like around about only 10%. 10 to 15%, depending on how they judge, on how they set the categories or the criteria, Basically, the church as a whole is retaining roughly one-tenth of the children that are being raised in the church, in Christian circles. Is there anything specific or particular there? Well, look, the word of hope that I would give you is that basically the more centred on the word of God a church is, the better that number looks. It is true. The, the, the more solid, the more biblical the teaching, the stronger the Christian worldview, which is being set in opposition to the world, the better those churches do at retaining children. But in an overall sense, you're looking at around about a tenth. And that should make us tremble. It should be breaking our heart. I mean, let's be simply honest. What that tells us is that if the church as a whole, if we as a whole were better at raising our children, just in terms of sheer numbers, we'd have nine times as many. Just in terms of sheer numbers, we'd have nine times as many. Now, you can throw it straight back at me and say, yes, Scott, but you believe in the sovereign grace of God and that according to the sovereign grace of God, people are only saved when God saves them and Christian parents can't force their children to be saved. I 100% agree with that. That is the truth. That is correct. But look around. Ask yourself a question. What would be God's usual means of bringing someone to salvation? You know, not God's miraculous means. I know God can save anyone, anywhere, anytime, by any power he so desires. He could reach out his hand to someone and convert them on their own, away from any other Christian. Amen. But the reality is the way that he has said in his scripture that he will build his church is that Christians communicate the word of God by the power of God's Holy Spirit to other people and other people are saved. And as our children are being raised in our households where we are supposed to be diligently teaching them those words, you would have to think, therefore, that it is most likely that most of church growth, most of our church growth and converts should be coming from within our godly families. It's, that's the usual means of grace. They should be growing up in a Bible reading, praying household where parents hold a biblical worldview and basically contest the wisdom of the world, struggle with it, fight with it, battle with it. You know, I, I don't know if... You know, one of my sons is here this morning. I don't know if he would say this with a smile on his face or perhaps he would say it got a bit tiring in the end. But in the end, I kind of got tired of the fact that anything we'd watch as a family, dad would argue with it. 
Oh, listen to them talk about millions of years and the single germ that becomes the cell, that becomes the this, that becomes the that. I would argue with the, with whatever we were watching, always trying to push forward what I believed is the correct biblical Christian worldview. I wanted them to understand something. We're at war with the world and the world is at war with us. And the world at this moment subscribes to ideologies of sterility. Ideologies of sterility or ideologies of death. What do I mean? Well, what is their solution to so many problems? Poor person is sick. Poor person is suffering. Poor person says, I feel like dying. What's the solution? Help them to die. Kill them. Get rid of them. Move them on. Death is the solution. Unborn baby. We've run the genetic tests. Unborn baby has some challenges in front of them. Now, these, I'll just point out that these tests are not always right. We know people who've had children that were supposed to be handicapped and they are not. But they run their genetic tests. The science says this baby will be born struggling. What's the world's solution? Well, it might be life, but it's not a life worth living. Let's just kill it. Death. Well, then you've got the ideology of the greens. The world is overpopulated. Too many people in the world. How do you stop getting people in the world? You stop having children. The ideology of sterility. Be sterile. What's the education system telling kids? You know, you've only got to go back 45, 50 years and a very high percentage of girls basically had a very simple plan or dream for life. God bless them, but it was this simple. They wanted to grow up. They wanted to just have basically a normal job, find themselves a husband, move into a home and raise a family. That was their dream. It was that simple. That was what they wanted to do. They wanted to be the wife of one husband and have a happy household. And the system started to tell them, no, 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 you're the hope of the future. You've got to set your heart on a degree. You must go to uni. You must be trained. You must be a genius. You must have a career. Perhaps at some time or other, somewhere down the road, you might want one child just for yourself. But don't go dreaming of family and playing happy households. That's just the uh, oppressor's brainwashing you well let me tell you something just by the way get this clear everybody is brainwashed everybody is brainwashed everybody in the world is brainwashed or indoctrinated or however you want to put it everybody in growing up is taught a worldview and that worldview is reinforced again and again and again the people who would tell you that our worldview is an oppressive worldview of the evil patriarchy are themselves oppressed by their worldview. And they have some kind of structure that they are living in obedience to. And they have some kind of system which enforces obedience to that worldview. But at the moment, the ideology is sterility. Be sterile. The ultimate sex act 
at the moment. And look, it's a sermon. We're in a church. I'm, I'm not trying to be disgusting. I'm not trying to be shocking. But the ultimate sex act at the moment is the act for which the sodomites were destroyed. Whether it's male on male or male on female, it is that act. And you talk to any of the teenagers out there in the world today and they've got these things, these electronic devices and these electronic devices stream into them porn anytime they want to see it and the ultimate sex act in porn is what we've been reading about in Genesis chapter 19 which brought about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even for girls, get it clear, even for girls, the consideration of the world out there around about us today is if the girls have not done what the Sodomites did, they have not been good girlfriends. They have not fulfilled the demands of the world. All right? That's what porn has done to our society. But here's the thing that I want you to consider. That is an act of sterility. It's not male meets female and brings children into the earth as God commanded at the beginning. It is an act of sterility. It cannot bring about childbirth. It cannot bring about the multiplication that God has commanded. Go out into all the world and fill it and take dominion over it. Sterility. Why are they telling girls that if a girl is unhappy as a girl, oh, you don't like the shape of your breasts. You don't like the fact that boys look at you. You don't like the fact that you should have nice hair. You don't want to be feminine. Well, maybe you were born with the wrong body. And what's the first thing they do to them, if you don't know, when they've taken them down that course, when they've turned them in that direction? They give them what they call puberty blockers. What do the puberty blockers do? Well, one of the things that puberty blockers do, apart from arresting development, is they make them infertile for the rest of their lives. Okay? Those girls that are put onto those puberty blockers will not have children. They are now nothing other than infertile. I'll call them drones. Whether they try to live their life out pretending that they're boys or whether they realise that that was a mistake and seek to go back to being girls, they have been made infertile. The ideology of the world is sterility. And which, which um, small influence group would be the actually most powerful influence group in the world today? If I say L, G, you know what comes after. Which is once again an ideology of sterility cannot bring children into the world. Now think about it. If you have an ideology, if you have a worldview, if you have something that you think it would be best if all the people around about you agree with, something that you think offers the diagnosis and the solution to the troubles of the world, what do you want to do with that ideology? You want to indoctrinate it, teach it. Who do you want to teach it to? Well, it goes in the deepest if you can get it children. It bears the most fruit if you can get it into the minds of children. 
because it affects their decisions and their lives for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But your ideology precludes you from having children. Your behaviour precludes you from having children. Your lifestyle is a lifestyle of sterility. And you want to indoctrinate children. Where do you get the children you want to indoctrinate? You go after the children of the fertile. You go after the children of what we as Christians would call the normal the normal people, normal according to God's, uh, God's of, according to the standard of God's word, which tells us what is normal. Husband meets wife. Husband cleaves only unto wife. Wife cleaves only unto husband. Children result. They fill the world. They exercise dominion over it. You see, our worldview is a worldview that brings life. Not just spiritual life, it most certainly brings spiritual life. We preach the words of God, we preach the gospel. But there's also life. You know, when when the whole crew turns up, there's little kitties running all around the place here of a Sunday morning. You know, lots of noise. That's the noise of life. That's the noise of obedience. That's the noise of blessing. Well, guess what? Out there... They want to indoctrinate our little kitties. That's how you get your worldview to prosper throughout the years. You indoctrinate children because they're the easiest to indoctrinate. They don't already have a pre-existing worldview. They don't have a lifetime of experiences that give them hard-won wisdom. There's a reason why church leaders are called elders. It's because wisdom comes with experience. It's because you learn things the hard way. Just a little aside, just some more research that I've come across. Our painful memories in our minds are five times more, statistically speaking, five times more impactful, five times more powerful than our negative memories. How's that? Why would that be? What would that mean? Well, you know, when you're riding your bike and everything goes right, you're a little kid, you're learning to ride your bike, you're pushy, push bike, you're off down the hill, flying along, the wind through your ears and everything goes right and it's fun. Well, you know what? At those moments, you don't actually learn something. You're just having fun. This is fun. I'm riding the bike. This is fun. But when the obstacle comes up in front of you, and you have that moment of panic and delay as you're trying to work out, can I go around it, can I miss it, or can the brakes stop me in time? And it suddenly all goes wrong, and you end up on the ground, and you're scraping the muck off your legs and your arm and your hands because you're trying to stop yourself from getting hurt even worse, and all that stuff. That becomes a negative experience, but you actually learn something. Your mind multiplies that to itself. Learn to look for obstacles down the road. Learn to look for obstacles down the road. It's fine. You can ride your bike down the hill and enjoy the wind whistling through your own ears. But you'll learn to look for obstacles down the road so that you start to slow down or avoid the obstacle in time and stop yourself getting hurt badly. That's experience. That's experience. That's why the Bible insists that church leaders should be elders, people who have learned by experience. They've skinned their knee. 
They've smashed the bike. They've gotten over it and learnt the lesson. Well, we know, those of us who have served the Lord for any number of years, we know that you walk in the way of blessing or you walk in the way of stumbling and we know from painful experience that stumbling hurts. We know that. We've learnt it the hard way. Those of us who've served the Lord for any period of time have learned not to despise the discipline of our God. We've learnt that it hurts. When the shepherd has to, has, has to get that hook around our neck and hook us back into the flock, it's not pleasant. We've learnt that. But indoctrinating children who have no negative experiences to have trained their worldview, it's much easier and you can fill their head with lies. You can be whatever you want to be and everything will be all right. Everyone who ever came before you is wrong and they know nothing, but you are the genius and everything will be all right. You can do as you please and everything will be all right. There are no consequences to your actions. Everything will be all right. Everybody on the world must make room for you and everything will be all right. And you must never be offended by anything and no one should ever say anything that disagrees with you and you will be all right and everything will be all right and everybody will be happy. And any of us who've lived in this world under the discipline of God for any period of time, well, I see one of us is laughing at the stupidity of what I've said. But that's the teaching of the world. And it's against God. And they want to pour it into the heads of children. So coming back to Lot, the, the, the last thing we see of Lot, the one whom scripture tells us was righteous with a tormented righteous soul. What do we see? He's got two daughters. And they're sodomites. He's a believer and his daughters are spiritual sodomites. Horrible, unclean, selfish, wicked little girls is what you would call them. Think about it. Think about it. These girls, they've just lost their mother. Their family has been basically bereft of all of its worldly blessings. They've lost their betrothed husbands. Their family is fleeing in fear, can't live in Zoar because the people of Zoar are probably blaming them for the destruction that fell, befell the other four cities around about them. They're living in a cave in the hills somewhere and they look at each other and they say, you know what? We need a man. We need a man. We don't have a man. We want a man. We need a man. Think about it. Is that the behaviour of a normal person? A normal, loving person? Your mother's dead. Your betrothed husbands are dead. All the friends you knew in the city are dead. Your family's barely escaped total destruction. And all you can think about is, we need a man. Any man will do. We need a man. Spiritual sodomites. 
What else can we call them? So let's um, try and unfold a bit from the life of Lot and look at how he got to this situation. How this believer got to the point where his children, instead of being a blessing from the Lord, were a curse upon his head. And the first thing we're going to do is turn in our Bibles, if you will, please, to Genesis chapter 13. First heading, Lot departed from Abraham. Genesis chapter 13, verses 5 to 7. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We'll stop there. So Lot is, we're told, a believer. Remember, counted righteous. All right. Where did Lot hear the word of God from? If we wanted to use this word, who was Lot's pastor or who was Lot's prophet? To put it in modern parlance, whom did God use to lead Lot to himself? Answer, Abraham. Abraham is Lot's pastor. Abraham is Lot's prophet. Abraham is Lot's priest. Remember, they didn't have written scriptures. So in a way, Abraham is Lot's word of God. Lot hears from God through Abraham. Lot exercises faith in God, the God whom Abraham spoke about. Though Abraham was Lot's spiritual leader and should have been his spiritual master, Lot allowed dispute and competition with the one whom God had set over him. Why do I say that? When a servant acts, it is considered that the master has acted through his servants. So when Lot's herdsmen start fighting Abram's herdsmen, how does Abram interpret it? Lot wants trouble. Lot wants to compete. Lot wants to set himself at my side as my equal. Lot wants to struggle. So instead of basically arranging his life around the word of God, okay, and remember he receives his word of God from Abram, instead of arranging his life so that he would be built up and strengthened in the Lord through the only one who was teaching him of the Lord, and that one was Abram, he goes into competition with his teacher. In other words, he will not accept the authority of God's appointed servants. He just will not accept the authority structure that God has set in place. When he allows or permits his servants to fight with Abram's servants, it's as though he himself has chosen to fight with Abram. And so he departs. He departs. 
To put it another way, he moves out of his church. Because no church is quite good enough for him, apparently, and no church quite recognises his gifting and his importance. He departs from that place where hopefully he could possibly be sanctified. That's the first point. He departs from his source of the word of God. Second one, Lot is obsessed with appearance, the way things look. Let's get this. Lot looks to the world. Reading on Genesis chapter 13, verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot, verse 10, lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot lifted up his eyes. He looked. Just like Eve looked at the fruit on the tree and saw that it was good for food, he looked. And why was Lot's wife put to death? What brought about her own death? She turned back and she looked, looked, looked with longing at the world, looked with hunger at the world. You know, there are people, they sit in the church, whether they know it or not, they're under the blessings of God here, the word of God. Okay, just hearing the scripture, let alone forget about the minister. You might think I'm a lousy preacher. I I wouldn't even argue with you. I think I'm a lousy preacher. I'm not even joking. We read the scriptures here. Okay, you've heard scriptures read here. Forget about whether or not you're hearing me. When you heard the scriptures read, you heard the voice of God speaking directly to you. This is the place of blessing, my friends, because here we're reading the scriptures and as the people of God, we're hearing the word of God. But there are people who sit here in this place of blessing and all they want to do is look out at the world, look out to where the grass is greener. All they want to do is get back into the Garden of Eden, but they don't want to carry the cross before they get there. Okay, the book of Revelation carries many pictures in words of the Garden of Eden. And it's promising us that our future, our eternal future in the presence of God can be likened to the Garden of Eden, but it's better because we'll be there permanently in the presence of Jesus. But people who basically want to cheat, people who don't accept the way that God has ordained the Christian life is to operate, what they want to do is they want to get into the Garden of Eden right now. Jesus said the way to the Garden of Eden is you take up your cross and you follow after him. And though you die, yet shall you live. It's a life of service. It's a life of suffering. It's a life of being condemned by the world around about us. It's a life of leaving things behind that we may inherit the heavenly reward and be in that place which is even better than the Garden of Eden. But religious liars, people seeking the shortcuts, 
They want the Garden of Eden now. And so Lot, instead of looking at the promised land, remember at this point of time, Abram is walking through the promised land that God had promised. It was a land of hills and valleys. Lot looked over to one particular valley, saw that it was well well watered, and in his mind's eye he thought, that's like the Garden of Eden, that place. It's so beautiful. Where else would I want to be? Those who are taking the way of weakness in the Christian life, and they may be saved. Okay, let's, let's just imagine there are very weak Christians out there like Lot. They are not powerful. Their Christian life is not fertile. It's sad. But Paul does speak of those people who lose everything, but they're saved as though saved from the fire. So it's obviously possible that such a person could be alive today. All they want is comfort now. All they want is paradise now. Their eye is not on the promise of the future. Their hope is that for which they can get right now. Probably they like prosperity preachers. Those preachers that promise that all you have to do is name it and claim it. Pray about it. You'll get what you want every time. Don't worry about it. All the suffering fell on Jesus. None of the suffering falls on us. That's the prosperity gospel. Well, all the suffering and punishment fell on Jesus and we are to be like Jesus in our war with the world, which means the world is going to hate us just as it hated Jesus. If you're born again, you're born into warfare. It's just a fact. He looked away from the promised land. He looked for paradise right now. So we've got a picture of a man who will not arrange his life in order to place it under the word of God who is willing to struggle with those whom God has placed over him because he thinks that he deserves some kind of equality. And he looks to the world and the comforts of the world, seeking his blessing right now. You know, delayed blessing, my friends, delayed blessing. It's it's been lost. My, My grandmother, she would save 50 cents at a time for something that she really wanted. You know, she wanted a, a brand new stereo record player, I remember once. A brand new stereo record player. And every time she went to the shops and every time she went out to do her shopping and her groceries or whatever, every time she got a 50 cent piece in her change, it went into a little pouch in her purse and she'd come home and she had a big container and she dropped the 50 cents in there. And then eventually one day she opened the big container, poured it out on the table and I sat there with her and we sat there and we counted the 50 cent pieces and she said, I've got enough. I've got enough. Tomorrow I'm going into town, I'm going to, she named a certain store and I'm buying that record player. Delayed blessing. She could have got it on terms. She could have paid interest on it. She did not. She set aside a little, a little, a little, a little, a little till finally she had it. Let's move on. The next thing that I want us to think about as we think about Lot is that Lot avoids making hard distinctions. He avoids making hard distinctions. He he avoids drawing lines in the sand. He avoids seeing things in black and white. Okay, this, what I would call effective Christian worldview requires that you see things for what they truly are. 
It's no good fooling yourself. It's no good telling yourself that things are not the way they are because that's the way you want them to be. You must see things in black and white and you must measure things according to that which has been revealed to us from God. Lot did not like hard distinctions. Remember in Genesis chapter 14, Lot was taken prisoner by an army as though he himself were a sodomite. He was treated just the same as the sodomites. And the one whom God had appointed to be his pastor and spiritual leader had to go and rescue him. Abram went to war with the captors of Lot and drew Lot back away from captivity. But he would not learn. Think about it. What would wisdom be at this moment? If, if you were a believer and you were, you were trying to interpret and or understand the providence of God, you've separated yourself from your spiritual leader, the one who led you to the Lord, and you've gone off to live among the sodomites and you're starting to get treated providentially as though you yourself were a sodomite. You know, I've spoken about those of us who've walked with the Lord any period of time and what you learn is you must pay attention to the discipline of God. You must not belittle the discipline of God. Well, you've been taken prisoner, dragged off as a captive. Their plan will be to basically sell you off into slavery or make you their own slave for the rest of your life. You had to be rescued by someone else who has not followed you into your errors. How would you interpret the providence? How should you interpret the providence? You should start wondering about whether or not it's wise to stay here amongst these people. Whether or not it's wise to keep living the way I'm living. Okay, I haven't joined the locals in their sin. But I'm living here amongst them. And to the people who come from around about, they see me as being one of them. Maybe I should move out. Maybe I should get myself back closer to that source of initial blessing. See if I can rejoin fellowship with Abraham. That would do me some good. Maybe I need to get out from the midst of these people. When I first became a Christian. Now, I became a Christian in reading the Old Testament. And one of the things that I first realised as I read forward through the Old Testament, is that God, the God who was, who was in the scripture, in the Bible, I wasn't a believer at that time, but I understood something. This God in this Bible hates two things in particular and those two things always seem to go hand in hand. He hates idolatry and he hates sexual sin. And they always seem to go hand in hand. They're the right hand and the left hand of the people who are called the enemies of God. Now, at that time, I myself was, you know, I was a heavy metal fan. I, I would honestly say, though I would have called myself an atheist, the truth is, as I look back on those days, music was my religion at that time. And the darkest bands that were around at that time were Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath. There's darker bands around nowadays, but back then, Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath, and they were my favourite bands. And the place that I rented, that I lived in, was 
filled with the paraphernalia of those bands. I went to the concerts, I bought the T-shirts, I bought the posters, all the rest of it. I had the albums, I had everything, as much as I could get, everything to do with them. And I guess it was probably one of the worst, one of the first workings of the Spirit of God upon my life because I remember realising that God in this Bible hates idolatry and sexual uncleanness and I've got a house full of idols. Oh, and by the way, I had a cupboard full of pornography. I've got a house full of idols and a mind full of pornography. You know, if you've got it in your cupboard, you get it into your mind. That's the way it works. I had a house full of idols and a cupboard full of porn. And I remember thinking to myself, if he's real, he and I are not on good terms at this moment. When I was converted, when I was converted, one of the things I did, you know, and this is going to sound sort of a little bit out there and crazy, I don't mind, I built a fire. And I fed that stuff into the fire. I burnt it. I burnt it. No one told me to. All right. I wasn't converted attending what you might call a fundamentalist Baptist King James only type church where they would really encourage people to do this kind of thing. That wasn't the church we were in at that time. No one gave me any encouragement to do this. Oh, and the other thing that I had... I remember now I had a I had a zodiac sign, a piece of jewellery, solid gold zodiac that my mother had given me. You know what? I had read in the scripture that God hated astrology, which was just another form of idolatry. So I built a fire. And into the fire went the records. Into the fire went the CDs. Into the fire went the posters. Into the fire went the T-shirts. Into the fire went the paraphernalia of a heavy metal fan. Into the fire went the porn. I literally burned this stuff. And then I noticed I had this thing, this golden symbol of astrology, and I got a hammer and I smashed it flat so you couldn't read the markings of it and then I threw it in the fire as well. That's extreme. What do you think people said to me when they found out I'd done this? Good on you for repenting of your sins. I was told I was going too far. I was told I was taking things too seriously. I was told I was being too literal. I was not encouraged. I was discouraged by people who called themselves Christians. They did not like hardline distinctions. They did not like black and white distinctions. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I'm wonderful or strong because I did those things. I did those things because I knew my weakness. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, for example, speaks of the weak believer and the weak believer is the one who can't take a chance on anything. If he goes into a place where there are idols, he knows that those idols might exert their influence on him so he can't stand the thought of doing it. In the Apostle Paul's mind, the weak believer is the one who having stopped drinking, for example, simply cannot allow themselves to even come near alcohol again. And the Apostle Paul considers that person to be a weak believer. I was a weak believer. I knew that these things had had major influence on my life for the last 10 years. 
And if I didn't get them out of my life, they would continue to exert that influence. I knew my weakness. It's not, I didn't do those things because I'm strong and special and wonderful. I did them because I'm weak and vulnerable to temptation. That's why you do those things. That's the correct, that's the correct motivation to do those things, to separate yourself from the wickedness that you've known. The understanding that you're weak and vulnerable and you just simply can't take the chance with it. Lot would have been one of those who said, you know, you didn't really need to do that. It's okay. You could listen to that stuff and just thank God that you like the music. You probably really shouldn't look at the pornography because Jesus says if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, that's a bad thing. But lighting a fire... You could have just thrown it in the bin. And regards astrology, it's just harmless foolishness. No one believes that stuff is real anyway. You could have kept wearing that necklace that your mother gave me. You probably offended her. I did offend her. That's the sort of thing Lot would have said. That's the sort of thing believers around about me at that time were saying. Lot is fully aware of the nature of the sodomites around about him. Remember, the scripture tells us that his righteous soul was tormented by the wickedness that he saw. Well, that's good. I'm glad he was tormented by it. But he didn't move away from it. He didn't get out of it. He didn't think to himself, you know, this place is wicked. This place is encouraging compromise. This place is bad for me and bad for my family. Maybe it's time to move on. Looking in Genesis chapter 19 at verse 16. He's got two angels there. They're telling him they're about to burn the city and all who are within it. Destruction is coming. Judgment is coming. God knows about these sins. He's going to destroy the place. As morning dawned, Genesis 19:15, the angels urged Lot saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. But he lingered. Imagine two angels, two bona fide holy angels come to you from God in heaven and warn you, get out of this place, it's about to be burnt. Oh, but, oh, but, oh, but do we have to go in a hurry? Do we have to go now? Do I have time to pack a bit of treasure on a donkey perhaps? Do we have to rush off? What time is it going to happen? 10 past 10? Oh, I've got 45 minutes yet. I could take as much of this stuff with me as possible. But, 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 but. He lingered. The sins around about him that tormented his soul are about to bring down the destruction of the place. And even so, he doesn't want to go. And then look at, as we read on, Verse 16, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Don't waste time, brother. They got hold of him and dragged him out. That's the picture you're getting. (laughs) We'll get you out of the joint. Forget about it. Don't forget about the house, mate. Don't pack the veggie, mate. We're going. And they brought him out. One said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Remember, Abraham would be back in the hills, escape to the hills. 
You know, it was from a hill that Abraham looked down and saw the destruction. And Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favour in your sight. and You've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Oh, I'm scared. Something bad might happen between here and the hillside. You know, God has sent his angels. God has saved him from destruction and he can't trust God to get him on a walking trek across the valley and up the side of a hill. I'm scared. Fearful. And then look at what he says to them. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He's looking to the smallest city of the cities on the plain that are to be destroyed. It's called Zoar. And he says, look, I know they're as bad as the Sodomites, but there are hundreds of Sodomites and there's only a couple of dozen Zoarites. So, you know, maybe it sort of works out statistically that their sins aren't as great as these sins. It's only a little city. Maybe I could go there. You know, I think he was still hoping that the valley in which he lived would be like the Garden of Eden after the day of destruction. You know, let's think about it. I mean, if you lived in a place with fertile land and productive soil and that place is feeding, let's say, I don't know, I'll guess, 100,000 people. And then something happens and it reduces the number of people around about to 1,000 people, but the same fertile land and productive soil is there. What are you if you're willing to work? Suddenly you're a rich man. You go and take the lion's share of the fertile land and productive soil. He's thinking of the advantages. I could still be here in this valley, which is like the Garden of Eden after all these sinners have gone and I can get a great big chunk for myself. He's basically whinging and whining. His life is being saved. His family is being saved. He's being rescued from destruction and he's whinging and whining that it's tough. Whinging, whining, weak, grumbling Christians. Don't accept the providence of God. Won't accept that things don't have to always be easy. Won't accept that things don't always go right. Whinging, whining, grumbling Christians. Won't accept that you don't have to get what you want. You don't necessarily always get what you want. And that God's way is always best. It's just a little city. There's only a few dozen sinners there. He doesn't like hard distinctions. He doesn't like black and white. He doesn't like lines in the sand. Here I had to compromise with a thousand sinners. Over there I'll only have to compromise with whatever's there. A hundred, thirty, who knows, I don't know. He will not make his hard distinctions. He will not set his faith in opposition to the world. He will not go to war. He will not fight for godliness. He will not struggle. He always wants the easiest path. He always wants the simplest way. Sometimes the way of obedience is the most difficult path. Jesus said the way is narrow. It's narrow. Let's move on. My next Point concerning Lot and his failure as a believer. 
I've already sort of alluded to it, but I conclude that he will not admit failure. He's stubborn, not humble. He will not admit failure. He's stubborn, not humble. I mean, surely the troubles that are recorded in chapter 14 should have been interpreted as a warning. Abraham himself had rescued him. If you're going to be wise, wouldn't that moment be the time when you walked up to Abraham and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I should not have let my servants attack your servants. I should not have gone to live amongst these sinners. I should not have walked away from you. You were the one who led me to God. I'm sorry. Can the fellowship be restored? I will separate myself from them. That was the time. The chapter 19, verse 19, he does not want to return to the hills. Abraham's in the hills. Abraham's looking down over the destruction. He does not want to be reconciled to the one who led him to the Lord. Oh, and by the way, we find in the text that we've read, read, he had a lot of wine on hand, (laughs) a lot of alcohol. You know, this wasn't whiskey. This was old-fashioned fermented wine. To get a person that drunk takes a lot of wine. Why? Why was his priority making sure he had wine? Well, I, I, I conclude these things troubled him. But if you get drunk, you don't have to think about the things that trouble you. There are two reasons I conclude, based partly on my own experience and partly from the experience of the family that I grew up in, that people like to get themselves stupid drunk. One is it's a forgetting of reality. It's a forgetting of reality. It's a a ceasing to ask difficult questions. It's a ceasing to think the difficult thoughts. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? Where will I be in the long run? You don't think those questions, you don't think about those things when you're drunk. And the other thing is, it takes away moral restraint, which his daughters well knew. And you can do stupid things that you would not otherwise do out of sheer embarrassment. The disgusting behaviour that I've witnessed in my life as a result of drunkenness or as a, a fruit of drunkenness, I can't bother, I'm not going to bother trying to give you the list. But it's disgusting. And he had to have a whole lot of wine on hand. I think he was a man who was in some ways fighting his own conscience and not willing to admit that he had gone completely off the rails. I should never have struggled with Abraham. I should never have left my uncle. I should never have come out from under his spiritual authority. And to go back now, imagine the embarrassment of a man who has some kind of pride and was trying to set himself up as the equal to those whom God had set over him. So now we come to the result. What's the result? The result is that he's raised two girls who are spiritual sodomites. He's raised two girls who are spiritual sodomites. Remember, they've lost their mother, they've lost their betrothed husbands, they've lost their group of friends, they've lost the house they lived in. You would think, you would think that this made them meek and humble. But, oh, no, we need a man. They're shallow, carnal, wicked, selfish and lawless. They knew how to get a man to sin. 
you know, I've pointed this out before as we've worked through this chapter, but why weren't the Sodomites interested in them? Lot says, you can have my two virgin daughters, do whatever you please. And the Sodomites, it's as though they didn't hear it. It's not just because they were looking for men to rape. Remember, there were, there were, the scripture tells us in Genesis 19 that there were men young and old. They had women in the city. They knew how to get children when they wanted them. They had use for female flesh as well as male flesh. It's because the girls were already in the bag. They might have called themselves virgins. Lot called them virgins. Technically, they may well have been virgins. They may never have engaged in male-female copulation. But I've been in churches too long, my friends. Some of you have been in churches just as long as I have and you've seen it all and you've heard it all and you know what I'm getting to. There are an awful lot of things that young people in churches do which might still technically leave them able to claim to be virgins. But the truth is their behaviour is dominated by lust and sin. There are plenty of other ways to sin sexually apart from male-female copulation. And unfortunately, whether you like it or not, most of these kids raised in churches know exactly what those ways are. They've seen the porn. They've been influenced by it. And they've got friends out there in the world who are influenced by it and who are doing these things. And they are being influenced more by their friends than by their parents and by the word of God and by the teaching that they're receiving. They were already in the bag. The men of Sodom weren't interested in the daughters of Lot because they knew they were going to get them anyway. And they probably had had their way with them in different other ways. So they couldn't care less. They're already part of the crew. You see, they're already part of the crew. The men of Sodom were looking for fresh flesh, new people to conquer, new people to dominate, new people to use and abuse. And so they went after the angels who had appeared to them as men. The scripture tells us that children are a blessing from the Lord. Let's turn to Psalm 127. Starting at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Imagine lots at the gate of his household speaking with his enemies who are the Sodomites, whether he likes to realise it or not. And he's put to shame. (laughs) He's put to shame. He tries to give those girls to the Sodomites and the Sodomites aren't even interested. They've already got them. Lot's children, who should have been a blessing, are Lot's curse, Lot's burden, Lot's weight upon his head. The last things that we see about Lot in the Old Testament are shameful. This is what he's remembered for. This is what he's remembered for. 
More, I mean, 2 Peter chapter 2 tells us that he was considered righteous. But when I speak of Lot, anyone who's read the scriptures thinks of this incredibly weak, foolish believer who basically failed in everything he undertook as a believer. Lot had grandchildren by his own daughters and his own daughters being spiritual sodomites knew enough to know that they could get their father drunk, so drunk that he wouldn't know what he had done. I've grown up in in the company of alcoholics. Okay, let me tell you, it's not easy to get a person to that point of drunkenness where they don't know actually what they've done. When you tell them in the morning what they did the night before, and they say, you're joking. You sure? I didn't do that. You sure? Did I really do that? It takes a very advanced level of drunkenness to get a person to that level of stupidity. And they knew. And they knew how to do it. And they did it. Their own father. Honour your father and your mother, says the scripture. Use your father as a sexual plaything, say the daughters of Lot. We need a man. Our father's a man. Let's get the man drunk. Do with him as we please. And so this life of weakness, this life of poor decision making, this life which lacks godly wisdom, brings him to the point where his own children are not a blessing but a curse. They've been lost to the world and they're spiritual sodomites. I've said to you, been around now in churches for a while, seen a few different things. Just let me give you some illustrations. 100% true, 100% genuine. Not so long back, two, three weeks back, I was at a particular truck service centre I'd just bought fuel for the truck. I'd gone in. I was getting coffee, bite to eat. Standing in a queue. Place is very busy. You know when you get that feeling that someone is staring at you? Someone across the room has recognised you? And so I decided to play it pretty cool and slowly but surely just took a glance around the room and looked back down again. On the other side of the room, having just bought something from McDonald's, was the daughter of some people that Lisa and I have known for a long time. And she was staring at me because my face was obviously familiar. Now, these people, they claim to be Christians. And they may well be Christians in the manner that Lot was justified, incredibly weak. But these people have raised a daughter who considers herself to be a lesbian. And when she chose to marry the lesbian love of her life, These parents went through the whole charade of dressing her up in a white dress and having a wedding ceremony, etc., etc. A mockery. A mockery of the commandment and of the word of God. It's not for me to judge them. I can't say for sure or for certain that they are or are not Christians. Now that we read about Lot, we've got to conclude it is perfectly possible for a person to be an incredibly weak and foolish person yet still be saved. But this girl, well, now she was tattooed. Now she had a man's haircut. Now she looked ugly and angry. Oh, and by the way, by the way, 
There was not now two lesbians there, there were three. They'd added a third into the pack. Mockery. Spiritual sodomites. Raised by these parents who were dragging her along to a church. By these parents who were watching Christian How to Raise Your Child videos, etc., etc., etc. Spiritual sodomites. Another family. And it's, it's another one involving a daughter. We know the grandparents, we know the parents, we barely know the daughter. Raised in one of those very soft churches that don't make hard distinctions and don't set the Christian worldview in opposition to the world's own worldview and don't instruct people in the battle. Basically one of those churches where the doctrine is say you believe in Jesus and act as nice as you possibly can, which is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. Say you believe in Jesus and act as nice as you possibly can is a message of works. It's not a message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ to those who cannot save themselves. But anyway, her parents were career people and very wealthy. They also came from a very wealthy career background. And it turns out that, you know, well, let's, let's just talk about her mother. Her mother, career-oriented, highly educated, very highly paid, great responsibility, had only one child. Her father was an extremely successful salesman, made more money than I'll ever make. But he took up with the secretary and moved on out. The mother... Buried herself in the career. All right, so now you've got this daughter. What is she? Well, first of all, physically attractive. An attractive girl. Very smart. Excellent results all through school. Grandparents boasting about how smart this kid is. One of the, you know, it wasn't the, the, the first time the grandfather ever told me about this granddaughter. The first thing he told me was, she's smart. Straight A's. Top the year, straight into uni, studying medicine. She's smart. And she's been raised under this say you believe in Jesus and act as nice as you possibly can regime. And something happens when they get off to uni. You mix in with a whole lot of other people your age. And you look at your own family and this say you believe in Jesus and act as nice as you possibly can has not brought any happiness. Remember, her dad moved on out with the secretary. Mum left alone with only a career. Doesn't seem to be working very well. And these people all around about you, they're partying and they're having fun and they're living the sodomite lifestyle. Doing as they please and they appear to be so happy. Whereas those who are say you believe in Jesus and act as nice as you possibly can, they're miserable failures. But these all appear to be so happy. Did I tell you she was pretty? She decided to start, try and make some money on the side through Instagram. Photographs of herself, wearing swimsuits, etc. You know, it's porn. It's porn. It might be softcore porn. I'm not saying she went into triple X. 
but you start selling people photographs of yourself wearing barely any clothing, it's porn. It's sexually motivated. The reason people are willing to pay for those photos is uh, sexual lust, desire. And she started to party because everybody who was partying was happy. Anyways, I'll just cut to the chase. Didn't finish uni, dropped out. This smart person, this girl who's got the brains of a genius. Didn't finish uni, dropped out. She's a mental mess. She's still not a Christian. I don't care what her parents or family have to say. She's in and out of a mental institution. They drug her up. Oh, you want to get drunk here? We've got these drugs that get rid of desire. They also get rid of personality and everything. You just become this walking zombie. And, of course, eventually they get sick of being made walking zombies by being injected with chemicals. They stop taking the chemicals and then she wants to party again. (laughs) And so she's off and into the grog all over again and into the partying. The girl should be a jewel in the church. You know, the girl should have been raised to be happy if the Lord's will for her was nothing more than she be the beloved wife of a husband raising his children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Every Christian girl here, I'm telling you, be happy if that's all the Lord calls you to do because that'll be enough for you to answer to him for. If the Lord calls you to a career, that's a different issue. But I'm telling you, you should be happy to be the husband, to be the wife of a husband and raise his children. What about her brains? What about her abilities? Well, do you think the Lord wants his children raised by morons? (laughs) Do you think the Lord wants his children raised by morons? Look at the life she's living. Completely wasted, pointless, stupid life. Someone who should be a shining light in a church is just a mess. And the world can't help her because the world can't help anyone because remember, the world's ideology is not based on reality. There's only one thing ever going to help her and that's repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet she's surrounded by people who will not say that because like Lot, they don't like hard distinctions and they don't like drawing hard lines in the ground. They don't like saying things that might offend or might convict people of their sins. Wouldn't it be better if she was someone's wife, raising someone's children and using all those God-given abilities to raise them under the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? Would her beauty be wasted if that was the case? Would her brains be wasted if that was the case? No, absolutely not. It would be a fulfilling and fulfilled life. It would be a purposeful life. It would be a good reason to live. It would be the way God has said we should live. With regards both those girls that I speak of, I can tell you for a fact that their parents may or may not be saved. I don't make... It's not for me to make that judgment. It's not for me to make that judgment. But we've known them for years. All of these people, we've known them for years. And everything that we just found out about the life of Lot, we can talk about being parts of their life. Not 
arranging and prioritising to bring their life under the authority of the word of God. Always looking to the things of the world, the comforts of the world, the career, the money, the way to make things look good. Not willing to make the hard distinctions. To call sin, sin. To call righteousness, righteousness. To call people to repentance. Not willing to admit that their whole worldview is failing completely. Not willing to admit failure and repent. People burying themselves in their careers. People miserable, not rejoicing in the joy of the Lord. And what's the result? Well, they have daughters and spiritually those daughters are sodomites. That's the result. And those daughters are not blessings unless they repent. They are curses upon them and they remain curses upon them. And their lives are a misery because of their children. We want to raise our children in such a way that if they rebel and turn against the Lord, it is rebellion and it is turning against the Lord. The distinction is clear and obvious. You don't want someone to be able to come to you and say, well, did you teach the kids the word of God? And you say, well, no, I didn't actually. Did you teach the kids the biblical distinctions between sin and righteousness? Well, no, I didn't actually. Did you teach the kids to look at the world God's way, not the world's way? Well, no, I didn't teach them that either. Did you yourself model righteousness in the sights of your children? No, I didn't do that. My friends, if that's the case, don't be surprised if your children are spiritual sodomites. If they choose in rebellion to turn themselves into spiritual sodomites, their sins will be upon their own head. And at least you can have the comfort of knowing that according to the grace of God within you, you did your best. You raised them as well as you possibly could. You poured into them as much love and grace and the word of God as you possibly could. You modelled the Christian life before them as well as you possibly could. If they rebel against that, well, at least you know you've done the best you could. But my friends... If this description of Lot can be applied to you, don't expect to raise anything other than the children of Sodom. Don't expect to raise anything other than spiritual Sodomites. Don't expect to raise anything other than idolaters. Don't expect to raise anything other than people whose lives are dominated by sexuality. If you live like Lot, don't expect to be blessed like Abraham. It's that simple. Obey God in all things. Seek to be godly parents, carrying the cross, teaching your children that the world is not our friend, the world is our enemy. The battle starts close to home. Win the battle at home before you worry about winning the battle outside the door. Then take it outside the door. And God will bless us in our undertakings. These are his promises. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, such hard things to study in the word of God, such convicting things. Father, we know our failings. We know how far short we fall. 
we know that even though we are in Christ and even though we are empowered by your Holy Spirit in so many ways, we do not do the things that we ought to do. Now, Father, we thank you and we praise you for grace. We thank you and we praise you for the life that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in faithful obedience, modelling Christ to our families, modelling Christ to the world around about us. Help us, Father, to be obedient parents, wise in the way of the Lord, wise according to the Holy Scriptures, faithful according to the standards of God. Help us, Father, to do that which is right, that both we and our children may be blessed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.